Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Grandma's Kitchen by Jaspreet Manda. Two of my older sisters perished in the second plague. Not the first plague, but the second one that struck some time later. My sisters must be seven and eight when they were married off. Oh, how would they know what marriage was, what marriage has always been? Little girls they were, laughing, skipping ropes, pigtails flying in the air. That was the custom, you know. Little girls and boys married off before they knew what was happening to them. Your grandfather and I were married off early, so very early. Grandma sits on a low wooden stool on the plain concrete floor of her kitchen. She's putting together the batter, wheat flour, salt, gram flour, carmine seeds and finely chopped onions, blending and lathering with water in a brass platter with raised rims. Wetting her right hand to her blue-veined wrist, she gently pummels the dough and then smooths and fine plasters, checking it for consistency. Her hand knows the suppleness that works best for baking rotis. I was about six or seven. Your grandfather must be nearly eight or nine. Phew. What was that ceremony like? A child's play. That's all it was. On my wedding, I played five stones, the knuckle bones pebbly and purple-hued with Ban Singh. He was Banner then, your grandfather's cousin. Oh, larks, what fun it was. I was very good at riding the elephant. Peas in the pod. And the other one, what was that? Ah, horses in the stable. All frogs neatly in the well. And all four snuggling in the fish belly. Five stones, my favourite game. One by one, two by one, three by one. And then four in one go. Oh, I won all the tosses and throws from the first to the last. Bride champion I must have been. Grandma continues to fist the dough, rolling the batter into a thick pile from left to right of the platter, making sure bits of wet dough don't stick in the nooks between rims and the base. The platter's tin coating has begun to fade here and there, but still holds well enough. Bony hands level the batter, rolling it up like a sleeve. Her knuckles batter the whole thing down, bringing it up time and time again. And so the gentle pugilism goes on. 
My sisters were married off at seven and eight to two cousins from a well-known family. I don't remember anything of the weddings. Heard it all from my mother. The two were dolled up in bright red, swirling gowns with sparkly laces and silver gold rosettes, adorned and solemnised. After the ceremonies, feasts for wedding guests, grooms, clans and half a dozen other customs. The girl brides were not to accompany the boy grooms. They were to stay on at their parents. A few years sped by. The brides grew up. Young saplings, green and lissom, shiny white teeth and perennial smiles. Nimble on their feet, airy in their laughters. They had come of age, whatever was meant by that. Must be thirteen or fourteen, I reckon, the age when I was packed off to your grandfather's. So my sisters were to be finally sent to their husbands. The send-off was fixed, presents wrapped, stoles dyed, sweetmeats prepared. The festive air unfurled at home. Ripples of celebration arose from our courtyard. And then, within the blink of an eye, the two joys wrinkled. No one could make out how or why they fell ill. The twin beds in one room, nothing worked. Herbs, potions, prayers. Excitement slid into throaty whispers, blank eggshell stares. Within days they bade adieu to their parental home, one after the other. Two yellowed leaves still warm on the twig fell into my mother's lap. Her smiles shriveled. Pain caused into her eyes, intending to live there long after. Grandma picks up two onions, a twisty ginger knot and cloves of garlic, peels carefully and then dices the lot while cupping each in her palm, her hands constantly at work. Sunken orbs all moist, tears resting on her thinning eyelashes, a couple roll down her face. Done with her ministrations to onions, ginger, garlic and green chilies. Grandma feels a couple of tomatoes in the vegetable tray, washes and chops the pear, skin and countless lambent eyes, but first scooping the dimples out from under their chins, putting everything together in a wide brass pan except the chopped tomatoes. She pours in oil, adding cumin, salt, ground coriander and turmeric in a fluid sequence. The sputtering mixture slowly pinks and then begins to brown. That's when the shredded tomato goes in. Meanwhile, I have unpodded the peas, a whole heap of them. Shorn of pods, the luminous green peas, big, small and teeny-weeny ones in the corners, look such vulnerable dears. Grandma peels three potatoes, washes and chops them into medium-sized triangles. With the curry all done, she adds potatoes, letting them cook a while, before tipping in the bowl of peas, stirring the stew every two minutes. This goes on for quarter of an hour. She somehow knows it's time to add three cups of water 
and cover the pan with a brass lid. She waits for the first boil, holding the ladle in her right hand as her eyes grow distant and ruminative. My older brother Rattan had such light colouring, all cream and peaches, much like our white masters at the time. In beige-coloured loose shorts and striped green kurta, Rattan was a bundle of seven springs. My mother's favourite, the pearl of her eye. Not just her boy, she said, but her seven-year-old joy. Father wanted him to read and write. There wasn't any school in the village, though. There were plans to send him to school. And then one evening, Rattan fell ill, running high fever. Next day, his knees and ankles turned sore and soon bore inflammations. Another day, and his neck bloated up for some reason. He could barely whisper Ma. His gaze sought Mother's long skirts everywhere. As she put his head in her lap, his child being wilted forever. Everyone feared Mother would go down in a similar way. Anxious for her well-being, my siblings watched her hawk-like, but she plodded on. She was to bear with more trauma, more grief in the years to come. Grandma gets hold of the glass bowl she had set the curd in last night. She lifts a wooden churner, stirring and turning over the curds into a smoother, yogurty fare. She takes out a palmful of cumin seeds from a jar, heating and grinding them into coffee chocolate powder, sprinkling it into the bowl. Her castanets of fingers working rhythmically, Grandma mixes in salt, aromatic pepper and thinly sliced tomatoes. She gets up and retrieves a medium-sized cucumber from the fridge. In a moment, delicate green slithers of peelings begin to gather and heap up. Washing the skinned cucumber thoroughly, she starts grating it down to its tapering end. Behind the steel grate, the pale green hill grows bigger and taller. One deft move and the unsuspecting pile plops into the yoghurt. In an instant, it sinks into the brown dotted mixture. Grandma drops in a teaspoon of sugar crystals and then bedecks the fragrant fusion with eight blobs of tamarind chutney. Finally, on top of each red heart, rests a fine-veined mint leaf with slightly jagged edges. My father and his brothers, there were six of them. The one closest to my father in age was Chanchal, two or perhaps three years his junior. Chanchal was the quiet one, all work and no play, hoeing, ploughing, sowing, irrigating, weeding, manuring, harvesting. Every piece of work was shared between my father and Chanchal. After a day out in the fields, he came home with a headache. Too tired to move, he remained in bed the next day. A couple of days and he had a rattling cough. He coughed, gasped, sweated and lay down. It was a hacking, choking thing. He shook deeper and harder, holding his ribs. 
dry and grating as sand, and then rumbling, continual, deep as ocean. It was as if something awful was wedging a deep crater inside his chest. The village Hakim visited twice a day, herbs, brews and brown globules with black tea. Nothing helped. On the fifth day, the Hakim left without a word or hint of a remedy. Next morning, before the crack of dawn, Uncle Chanchal stopped coughing altogether. Drenched in helpless sweat, he lay supine, all spent at twenty-two. Chanchal left the way he had lived like a whisper. That day, near our courtyard trees, autumn leaves crunched and no birds chirped. The most handsome of my father's brothers was Niranjan. Being the youngest, he was the family's tender darling. Tall, lean, light colouring, and just the hint of a beard. Twinkle-eyed and quick-toed, he danced as he walked and sang as he spoke. He had studied till eighth form. Spring in his step, lilt in his heart, he was walking down our lane in the village. Fit and fine, happy and humming, when a neighbour asked him to lend a hand in lifting a sack of wheat. He did that, spontaneity and help, as always, came home after his share of field chores, had a light meal, two tumblers of buttermilk, and that's all there was to the day. Next morning, the back of his knees hurt, his neck ached and he was feverish. Niranjan had merely lifted a sack, and he began to wither away. A day later, the fever ran high, body aches worsened, his face crumpled. Niranjan's throat was parched all day, yet he couldn't swallow more than a sip. The third day brought a delirium. Ugly blotches had appeared on Niranjan's legs, thighs, armpits and shoulders. He was not conscious, but pain drew him out of his semi-comatose state. Again he would slide back into extreme exhaustion and surreal sleep. Blotches had now turned angry, red as if demons had got into them. Early fourth morning saw him lift his leaden eyelids briefly, silently beckon my grandmother and mother. My parents stood next to his bed. My mother, beaten with grief, my father, a hapless sight. My grandmother, blinded with tears, inconsolable, wordless, soundless. Niranjan looked at my grandmother. What can a dying 18-year-old hold out to his sobbing mother? Beseeching, farewell, yearning a fraying thread of hope giving way to the blackest clouds of despair or the flame's last flicker of love before the dreadful disease snuffed it out forever. With his parting breath, Niranjan did manage the gossamer murmur. I don't want to die, Ma. He left within seconds, his eyes perpetually trained on his mother.
plague was battening itself once again, devouring eight of my siblings, four uncles and two aunts. Death roamed unarmed everywhere. Homes, lanes, fields, temples, congregations, claiming hearths, hearts, hopes, laying its icy hands on mothers, offspring, memories, dreams and futures for weeks, months, a year or perhaps more. Death laughed and danced all around. Its reign went unchallenged, unsurpassed. My mother said her tears had dried up. She worked, walked, talked, held me in her lap, but her soul had gone numb. An amputee, she called herself. She used to say the dead go away forever. The living, however, continue to die every day. They wake up and die once again the next day. Grandma places the platter of dough to the left of the gas stove. She takes out the rolling pin from under the counter, its companion wooden base and the aluminium bowl of flour. She beckons me to sit nearby, a footstool with a tiny table, my designated dining seat. I'm quite peckish by now. Grandma pulls out dough from the platter, makes a pliant ball, flattens and then daubs it with flour on both sides. Rolling the pin, she starts to make a full moon. As the concave griddle heats up, she flattens another ball of dough. Together, the rolling pin and Grandma's hands pat and clap a perfect sphere. A neat flap and the roti swells down on the heated griddle in a soft flop. Grandma watches and then turns it over. Making a puff of white cotton cloth, she presses the roti gently, turning it round and round, coaxing the moon to bubble up, and surely it does in a matter of seconds. Grandma bakes the roti, moving it this way and that, reversing it a couple of times, and lo, the roti swells up glad, soft and airy, bouncy and buoyant. It dances a while on the griddle, wearing pale honey-brown dots on both sides, centre and periphery. Taking it off the griddle, Grandma melts a bar of butter, dabbing it quickly all over the moon face. I start blowing on it, trying to somewhat cool the hot planet, taking itsy-bitsy nibbles off its margins. I am eating the moon morsel by morsel, with heaped spoonfuls of peas potato stew, and generous portions of cucumber curds. Grandma looks on, her wizened eyes kissing me, the dreamy smile indulgent. Do you want another roti, my lovely? Yes, please, a small one. She nods happily, making another roti do a gentle merry-go-round. Do finish the stew and curd, sweetheart. Have water a good twenty minutes after your meal, preferably warm. Why warm, Grandma? It helps wash off the extra oil in the body, doesn't let anything clog. And no leftovers, please. 
Place the plate and bowls neatly in the sink with a bit of rinse. That makes for a quick wash-up later. Another bubbly full moon arrives, with grandma's love needed in every crease and wrinkle, every chuckle and crinkle, every roti, stew and curds. I'll make one more roti right away, for the birds. It's almost time. They'll be waiting for me. Grandma's Kitchen by Jasprit Manda. Grandma was played by Mally Harvey and the poet by Tallulah Howarth. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. Writing on the wall, writing on air. From Chapel FM Arts Centre on East Leeds FM. No place. You know that feeling when you're driving along in the dark and you suddenly feel a thud? There's no place like home, my favourite auntie always said, but this wasn't Oz. There's no place like home, there's no place like gnomes, there's no grace in loam, the snow tastes like coal. There's no one at home, we so hate these clothes, there's bald men buying combs, there's no faith in stones. The snow's made of bones, white crows paint black gnomes, hair's lost faith in combs, there's no place like home. My favourite auntie always used to say. But then, when we actually put her in one, 
You know that feeling when you're driving along in the dark and you suddenly feel a thud? God knows we were cruel as kids. Our kind of loving took the piss, thinking mum was thick. Couldn't add up or spell. Her mum in turn, beyond the pale, seeming to molt as well as smell. Wasn't all there, not the full quid. Got feeling borne out by hindsight once you had the words for it. God knows, we were cruel as kids. Them kids that looked after other kids had that snide smell of barge poles and quips. One drowned in a quarry aged four. Not the weak head. Like with them shouting next door or them in the cul-de-sac no one would touch. My dad said their dad never worked and once we stopped our test match to watch when their eldest son run away. The Benny Hill chase crossed the top of the estate. An entertaining change till they dragged him home. Of course, we never got to know. When my dad died, doing the rounds, learning, when I went to tell his brother my granddad was a wife beater till Uncle Chuck got bigger. It stopped then, he said. Got hold of him. Never understood. Such an intelligent man, but every so often it just came on him and then... God knows we were cruel as kids. While the Beatles were browsing the avant-garde, them kids that looked after other kids got interfered with. Mum let slip. No one ever let on. Cuddly cruelty tipped us off. But what we had was love. Not the central heating of compassion. Safe as council houses. A bedroom each facing the woods. Where the kids who looked after other kids... Faces like dustbin truck teddies traipsed around telling all they met that Alvin Stardust was really Bo Diddley. Not knowing any better, I sniggered, just like in the comics. You know that feeling when you're driving along in the dark and you suddenly feel a thud? Hi, Brenda. Hi, Derek. Just back from the funeral? Oh, yeah, it was such a lovely service. And you know, her creakinggate.com over 50s plan paid for the whole thing. Coffin, hearse, ocean sticks buffet, and an SM orgy where we had a Freddie Mercury tribute. Sniff cocaine off the heads of dwarves. Oh, sounds great. How do I apply? It's easy. Just one quick phone call during murder, she wrote. All you need is proof you recently completed two Ironman triathlons and a full MRI scan and they'll sign you up right away. Um, Will it matter if I've got emphysema and vibration white finger? Oh, you're a card Derek, aren't you? Creakinggate.com Don't worry about the details. It'll be all right. Here's a photo of uh, two trams on one of the narrow points in the uh, West Riding Tramway in uh, Upper Kirgit. Or is it Little Westcott? Trams didn't run in Little Westcott, Teresa. Wonderful atmospheric photograph. I love it. Looks like Little Westcott to me. Is that Little Westcott? Trams didn't run in Little Westcott, Christine. I still say it's Little Westgate. 
Look, the shop to the left is number 21. It's that of William Blackburn and Company Wholesale Clothiers. Here's a photo of the advert which appeared in the Wake Express throughout 1898. He knew the street where his shop was, 21 Kirkgate. Walking up and down Little Westcott today, you wouldn't believe that two trams could pass each other. Happy days. A memorable photo. It's not Little Westcott, Christine. I still say it's Little Westcott. You know that feeling when you're driving along in the dark and you suddenly feel a thud? Problems associated with the sudden acquisition of a life-size cutout of your deceased father. Number one. Carrying it through the town centre may make you slightly self-conscious. Number two. Don't ask your partner if you can keep it in the bedroom. Number three. Much as she enjoyed those videos the other day, your daughter doesn't want to cut out of her late granddad in her living room. Number four. Your son's suggestion that you put it on a bonfire may have something going for it. Indeed, it was your dad's dying wish to be cremated, thwarted only by your grieving mother's insistence in the mid-stages of dementia that she wasn't having him burned. Number five. It would make a unique and interesting prop for use in online performances, though outside of Halloween it's hard to see how. Number six. Under the bed is an even worse idea. Number seven, it wasn't even a real photo. Just a photo of you in a Trinity shirt with his head photoshopped onto it. In the original photo, he may have been eating a pie. Uncle Brian's the world's biggest liar. Has a caravan with a cellar and Calagas TV. Spots you a mile away, from behind. His brother plays the organ in the cricket club. Brian says... They were in the Beatles before John Lennon got shot. Uncle Brian's the world's biggest liar. Used to play cricket. Can I open the bat in wife's on her deathbed in hospital? Then slogged 50 before propping up the bar all night. Brian says, I've rung up and she's all right. Uncle Brian's the world's biggest liar who once scored 132 off the last ball when he smashed it into a passing, passing coal truck and kept running till they brought it back by taxi. Brian says, I've had a good career. Uncle Brian's the world's biggest liar, doesn't know his own age. A face like stewed tea, a dirty tan or tan dirt. Brian says, his mum were Moira Stewart. Uncle Brian's the world's biggest liar, who's having a four-legged turkey this Christmas and sharing it with his daughter, Jessica Dennis. Brian says, she's the only person who can catch it. Uncle Brian's the world's biggest liar, won the title in a contest with his brother who said, I cycled on a tightrope over Niagara Falls inside a battle with three men on me back. Brian said, I saw you. Uncle Brian's the world's biggest liar. I saw his brother last week who said their Brian had turned mean, eating his Weetabix raw. Uncle Brian says nothing, just smiles. No, Teresa, it's not Little Westgate, no matter what you think.
happy days I used to get off the train in Little Westcott, then go look at them puppies in Pike's Pet Shop in the Market Hall. Such memories! Christine, you can't have. The trams went out of service in 1932. The Market Hall wasn't built till 1963. Old white van patrolling Sandal area with clearly false RSPCA stickers on it. Dog owners beware, please share. It's sickening this, it's happening. What's happening to the world? Is it foreigners? Absolutely. It's about the third post I've seen about it. Please make any dog owners that may not be on Facebook aware. The picture of the van looks like it's in the old Westgate. Driver looks foreign to me. I saw a white transit with RSPCA stickers on Barnsley Road and I noted the reg number as RJ18XEW. Evening all, PCO Tim Charles, West Wakefield Neighbourhood team here. I have PNC'd the vehicle in question and I can confirm that the vehicle in question is registered to the RSP Society Charity Organisation body. They'll be fine if they got ID and prove they're legit. I've indeed personally spoken to the RSPCA inspector in that vicinity myself personally. The vehicle in question has indeed been attending genuine complaints of neglect in the vicinity over the last couple of days. I am personally cognizant that concerned members of the public in the vicinity are indeed concerned about the dobnapping allegations in question in the location concerned in that vicinity. Indeed, it is indeed awful, but be assured that the officer in question in that vicinity is indeed a legitimate member of the RSPCA Society Charity Organisation Body Committee and there is no need to be concerned. Thinking about it, why does a legitimate RSPCA officer need a third party to protest their innocence? It just doesn't wash with me. I smell a rat. If they come near our fur babies, I'll... Kill and have no conscience. Hi, Brenda. Hi, Derek. Checking your phone. Yeah, now I've dropped the grandkids off. I'm just checking my Manson family home alarm on their special app. Such peace of mind. Oh, yeah. We read about dog napping on Facebook yesterday. Escalating quickly into a home invasion ritual massacre slaying with elements of a sexual motive and possibly a hate crime. Hmm, that's right. It could easily have been you. Uh, why don't you give uh, Manson family alarms a call? Such peace of mind. Oh, yes. I'd love some Manson family alarms peace of mind. What do I do? Well, all you have to do is just give them a call and they'll send round Charlie, their con- security consultant, to look for weak spots in your home. Then, he'll install an intrusive set of cameras all over your house so you can check every room while you're down the garden centre. Peace of mind. If anybody breaks in, you'll see live images of them in your home that you'll never be able to forget, even with therapy. Oh, and they're currently offering a £50 voucher with every installation as well as peace of mind. Is that how you bought them military-grade binoculars? Oh, certainly is. With these, I can see right into the bedroom of that woman at number 20. I can't wait to get Manson family alarms round to give our family some peace of mind. Manson family alarms. Peace of mind since the summer of love. You know that feeling when you're driving along in the dark and you suddenly feel a thud? My favourite auntie always said, there's no place like home, 
This place thrives like mould. Our lips touch hot coals, I blow like it's cold. A slow escape from stones. The cold paints with bone, our poems taste like prose. The crows knit our clothes. I call this place home. There's no place like home, my favourite auntie always said, and wouldn't leave as plaster fell off the walls of woodworm memories, then opened the curtains, made a microwave meal of everything except enjoying the open spaces where she used to walk. How to get a council house in 1965. As he was dragged across his desk by the wrists, the housing clerk was surprised, to say the least. He had really put Dad in his place. I can't just make a house appear, you know. In hindsight, this had been a mistake. Look at them hands. They've never seen work. Now, look at these. One unfolded like an argument. Cement grey, big veins and a grip that trumped any number of procedural matters. He was surprised, to say the least. The new house had a bathroom, two gardens and a toilet. Hi, Derek. Hiya, Brenda. Another lager, Derek. Oh, yeah, cheers, Brenda. Uh, but none of that foreign beer. Really, Derek? Thought you liked a nice Belgian or Danish lager? Well, I used to, but since I've been watching GB News instead of the woke anti-growth left-wing media elite at Chapel FM TV, I've decided to take back control and stop drinking that foreign beer. I see. What will you have, then? Well, I'll, I'll have a tight lager, please, if I can, Brenda. Tight lager? Yeah, tight lager. Made from good old British and Yorkshire piss straight from the urinals under Headley's Western Terrace. It's blended with a slopping out from the stables at the Great Yorkshire Show. Cold filtered through Dickie Bird's cap and then strained through Arthur Scargill's comb-over. Mmm, look at that lovely pale straw colour. And I bet those bits, bits floating in it are good old Yorkshire grit, aren't they, Derek? Oh, aye, Brenda, he ekka, bar gum sitting now. Great Yorkshire grit and great Yorkshire piss like they don't have. Just a few yards away in Lincolnshire. Full-bodied, with just a hint of racism and 100% Yorkshire piss. Ooh, I love things with Yorkshire grit in them. Is it fizzy? Uh, not really. Uh, just 100% Yorkshire piss with all the self-awareness chemically removed in an unregulated industrial unit down Cross Green. Ah, he bargum. I go to the foot of Amanda Harper's wardrobe. But Derek, what if I'm not that keen on lager? Now, silly, now then, now, why not try taking the mick? An IPA that smells as sweet and fruity as a diabetic sample jar. Brewed from the foaming spittle of a national action meeting in Keithley and matured lovingly in the former slave quarters at Harewood House and advertised by that bloke off Look North who does poems in that fake accent. Cheers, Derek. I'll ask some of that. Anytime, Brenda. Yorkshire piss. Good old Yorkshire hospitality in bottles of piss. You know that feeling when you're driving along in the dark and you suddenly feel a thud? You know that feeling when you're driving along in the dark? You know that feeling? There's no place like home, my favourite auntie always said. But this wasn't Kansas. Yeah. 
Forget this place, this bedroom facing south that faced the Rooksnest Woods misnamed on maps. Plantations dribbling down from rock-faced clouds whose spurious sounds that posed as distant trains were belt conveyors hauling sleep that creaked with crooked noise and night shift steps of men I heard but never saw like parents were removed from surplus photo frames. The double-crossing sounds of wheels on rails that snake through bare-bulb nylon dreams got sorted, bagged and packed away then slung with shriveled childhood toys like rotten wood from listing sheds whose walls now migraine outwards there to hear then leave. Well, where are we going? Anywhere but here. Has anywhere got room for us? Why can't we just get on with it? It's madness to leave. We're not capable of standing on our own two feet. We're just a big estate, really. Is there a bright future where we're going? Were we lied to? We were promised Seacroft Civic Centre just as it looked on the photos of opening day. The crowds, the Queen, the school holiday, the sunshine through showers, the smell of paint. The roads just swept, a local hospital with A&E. Now there's too many people, too much stuff, not enough stuff. Where are people going to work? They automated the tills in the Tesco. It's just like a rattling of change in your pocket, but it's all copper. People say we are where we are, but can you just leave if you are where you are? Even if you do, you're still who you were before you left, but you're somewhere else with an automated Tesco, automated buses and a knockdown pub. And you never really leave, it's just that your neighbours stop talking to you. We were supposed to be a town in our own right, but we were always just part of Leeds and we didn't really talk to our neighbours even before they got that big TV. And even the bingo's gone now. They search you for drink on your way in. No more vodka bottles in your bag topping up halves of lemonade, getting slaughtered during the link game. What do we think we're leaving? Where do we think we're going? How do we leave? How can you just leave? Leave what? Leave this? Leave here? Leaving now? Leaving how? Just leaving. It's taking too long. Too much damage. You just decided, right? There has to be a reason. Is this a good time? It's time. Says who? Says me. Who are you? I know who I am. And this is what I say. Forget this place, this bedroom facing south that faced the Rooksnest Woods misnamed on maps. Plantations dribbling down from rock-faced clouds whose spurious sounds that posed as distant trains were belt conveyors all in sleep that creaked with crooked noise and night shift steps of men I heard but never saw. Like parents were removed from surplus photo frames. The double-crossing sounds of wheels on rails that snake through bare nylon dreams got sorted, bagged and packed away then slung with shriveled childhood toys like rotten wood from listing sheds whose walls now migraine outwards there to here, then leave. 
Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Mm-hmm.